Book Six, Chapter Forty Two of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Six, Chapter Forty Two. And after this little scene, through the busy, exciting weeks of the season which followed, Robert, taxed to the utmost on all sides, yielded to the impulse of silence more and more. Society was another difficulty between them. Robert delighted in it, so far as his East End life allowed him to have it. No one was ever more ready to take other men and women at their own valuation than he. Nothing was so easy to him as to believe in other people's goodness, or cleverness, or superhuman achievement. On the other hand, London is kind to such men as Robert Ellesmere. His talk, his writing, were becoming known and relished, and even the most rigid of the old school found it difficult to be angry with him. His knowledge of the poor and of social questions attracted the men of actions. His growing historical reputation drew the attention of the men of thought. Most people wished to know him and to talk to him, and Catherine, smiled upon for his sake and assumed to be his chief disciple, felt herself more and more bewildered and antagonistic as the season rushed on. For what pleasure could she get out of these dinners and these evenings which supplied Robert with so much intellectual stimulus? With her, all the moral nerves were jarring and out of tune. At any time, Richard Laban's daughter would have found it hard to tolerate a society where everything is an open question and all confessions of faith are more or less bad taste. But now, when there was no refuge to fall back upon in Robert's arms, no certainty of his sympathy, nay, a certainty that, however tender and pitiful he might be, he would still think her wrong and mistaken. She went here and there obediently because he wished. But her youth seemed to be ebbing. The old mural gaiety entirely left her, and people in general wondered why Ellesmere should have married a wife older than himself, and apparently so unsuited to him in temperament. Especially was she tried at Madame de Netville's. For Robert's sake she tried for a time to put aside her first impression and to bear Madame de Netville's evenings. Little dreaming, poor thing, all the time that Madame de Nitville thought her presence at the famous Fridays an incubus only to put up with because her husband was becoming socially an indispensable. But after two or three Fridays, Catherine's endurance failed her. On the last occasion, she found herself late in the evening, hemmed in between Madame de Nitville and a distinguished African explorer, who was the lion of the evening. Eugenie de Nitville had forgotten her silent neighbour, and presently, with some biting little phrase or other, she asked the great man his opinion on a burning topic of the day, the results of church missions in Africa. The great man laughed, shrugged his shoulders, and ran lightly through a string of stories in which both missionaries and converts played parts which were either grotesque or worse. Madame de Netville thought the stories amusing, and as one ceased she provoked another, her black eyes full of a dry laughter, her white hand lazily plying her great ostrich fan. Suddenly a figure rose behind them. "'Oh, Mrs. Ellesmere,' said Madame de Netville, starting, and then coolly recovering herself, "'I had no idea you were there all alone. I am afraid our conversation has been disagreeable to you. I am afraid you are a friend of missions.' And her glance, turning from Catherine to her companion, made a little malicious signal to him which only he detected, as though bidding him take note of a curiosity. "'Yes, I care for them. I wish for their success,' said Catherine, one hand which trembled slightly, resting on the table beside her, 
her great grey eyes fixed on Madame de Netville. "'No Christian has any right to do otherwise.' Poor, brave, goaded soul! She had a vague idea of bearing testimony, as her father would have borne it in like circumstances. But she turned very pale. Even to her the word Christian sounded like a bombshell in that room. The great traveller looked up astounded. He saw a tall woman in white, with a beautiful head, a delicate face, a something indescribably noble than unusual in her whole look and attitude. She looked like a Quaker prophetess, like Dinah Morris in society, like—but his comparisons failed him. How did such a being come there? He was amazed. But he was a man of taste, and Madame de Netville caught a certain aesthetic approbation in his look. She rose, her expression hard and bright as usual. "'May one Christian pronounce for all?' she said, with a scornful affectation of meekness. "'Mrs. Ellesmere, please find some chair more comfortable than that ottoman. And, Mr. Ansdale, will you come and be introduced to Lady Aubrey?' After her guests had gone, Madame de Netville came back to the fire, flushed and frowning. It seemed to her that in that strange little encounter she had suffered— and she never forgot or forgave the smallest social discomfiture. "'Can I put up with that again?' she asked herself, with a contemptuous hardening of the lip. "'I suppose I must, if he cannot be got without her. But I have an instinct that it is over that she will not appear here again. Dorday might make use of her. I can't. What a specimen! A boy and girl match, I suppose. What else could have induced that poor wretch to cut his throat in such fashion? He, of all men!' Eugenie de Netteville stood thinking, not apparently of the puritanical wife. The dangerous softness which overspread the face could have had no connection with Catherine. Madame de Netteville's instinct was just. Catherine Ellesmere never appeared again in her drawing-room. But with a little sad confession of her own invincible distaste, the wife pressed the husband to go without her. She urged it at a bitter moment, when it was clear to her that their lives must of necessity even in outward matters, be more separate than before. Ellesmere resisted for a time, then, lured one evening towards the end of February by the prospect conveyed in a note from Madame de Netteville, wherein Catherine was mentioned to the most scrupulously civil terms, of meeting one of the most eminent of French critics, he went, and thenceforward went often. He had, so far, no particular liking for the hostess. He hated some of her habitués but there was no doubt that in some ways she made an admirable holder of a salon, and that round about her there was a subtle mixture of elements, a liberty of discussion and comment, to be found nowhere else. And how bracing and refreshing was that free play of equal mind to the man weary sometimes of his leader's role, and weary of himself! As to the woman, his social naivety, which was extraordinary, but in a man of his type most natural, made him accept her exactly as he found her. If there were two or three people in Paris or London who knew or suspected incidents of Madame de Netfield's young married days, which made her reception at some of the strictest English houses a matter of cynical amusement to them, not the remotest inkling of their knowledge was ever likely to reach Ellesmere. He was not a man who attracted scandals, nor was it anybody's interest to spread them. Madame de Netfield's position in London society was obviously excellent. If she had peculiarities of manner and speech, they were easily supposed to be French. Meanwhile, she was undeniably rich and distinguished, 
and gifted with a most remarkable power of protecting herself and her neighbours from boredom. At the same time, though Ellesmere was, in truth, more interested in her friend than in her, he could not possibly be insensible to the consideration shown for him in her drawing-room. Madame de Netteville allowed herself plenty of jests with her intimates as to the young reformer's social simplicity, his dreams, his optimisms. But those intimates were the first to notice that as soon as he entered the room, these optimisms of his were adroitly respected. She had various delicate contrivances for giving him the lead. She exercised a kind of surveillance over the topics introduced, or in conversation with him she would play that most seductive part of the cynic, shamed out of cynicism by the neighbourhood of the enthusiast. Presently she began to claim a practical interest in his Elgood Street work. Her offers were made with a curious mixture of sympathy and mockery. Elsmere could not take her seriously, but neither could he refuse to accept her money if she chose to spend it on a library for Elgood Street, or to consult with her about the choice of books. This whim of hers created a certain friendly bond between them which was not present before. And on Elsmere's side it was strengthened when, one evening, in a corner of her inner drawing-room, Madame de Netteville suddenly, but very quietly, told him the story of her life. Her English youth, her elderly French husband, the death of her only child, and her flight as a young widow to England during the war of 1870. She told the story of the child, as it seemed to Ellesmere, with a deliberate avoidance of emotion, nay, even with a certain hardness. But it touched him profoundly. And everything else that she said, though she professed no great regret for her husband, or for the break-up of her French life, and though everything was reticent and measured, deepened the impression of a real forlornness behind all the outward brilliance and social importance. He began to feel a deep and kindly pity for her, coupled with an earnest wish that he could help her to make her life more adequate and satisfying. And all this he showed in the look of his frank grey eyes, in the cordial grasp of the hand with which he said good-bye to her. Madame de Netfield's gaze followed him out of the room. The tall, boyish figure, the nobly carried head. The riddle of her flushed cheek and sparkling eye was hard to read, but there were one or two persons living who could have read it, and who could have warned you that the true story of Eugénie de Netfield's life was written not in her literary studies or her social triumphs, but in various recurrent outbreaks of unbridled impulse, the secret, and in one or two cases the shameful landmarks of her past. And as persons of experience, they could also have warned you that the cold intriguer, always mistress of herself, only exists in fiction, and of the certain poisoned and fevered interest in the religious leader, the young and pious priest, as such, is common enough among the corrupter women of all societies. Towards the end of May she asked Elsmere to dine, on petit comité, a gentleman's dinner, except for my cousin, Lady Aubrey Willett, to meet an eminent liberal Catholic, a friend of Montalambert's youth. It was a week or two after the failure of the Wardlaw experiment. Do what each would, the sore silence between the husband and wife was growing, was swelling up more of life. "'Shall I go, Catherine?' he asked, handing her the note. "'It would interest you,' she said gently, giving it back to him scrupulously, as though she had nothing to do with it. He knelt down before her, and put his arms round her, looking at her with eyes which had a dumb and yet fiery appeal written in them. 
His heart was hungry for that old clinging dependence, that willing weakness of love her youth had yielded him so gladly, instead of this silent strength of antagonism. The memory of her mural self flashed miserably through him as he knelt there, of her delicate penitence towards him after her first sight of Newcombe, of their night walks during the Mile End epidemic. Did he hold now in his arms only the ghost and shadow of that mural Catherine? She must have read the reproach, the yearning of his look, for she gave a little shiver, as though bracing herself with a kind of agony to resist. "'Let me go, Robert,' she said gently, kissing him on the forehead and drawing back. "'I hear Mary calling, and Nurse is out.' The days went on, and the date of Madame de Netfield's dinner-party had come round. About seven o'clock that evening Catherine sat with the child in the drawing-room, expecting Robert. He had gone off early in the afternoon to the East End with Hugh Flaxman to take part in a committee of workmen organised for the establishment of a choral union in R, the scheme of which had been Flaxman's chief contribution so far to the Elgood Street undertaking. It seemed to her as she sat there working, the windows opened onto the bit of garden where the trees were already withered and begrimed, that the air without and her heart within were alike stifling and heavy with storm. Something must put an end to this oppression, this misery. She did not know herself. Her whole inner being seemed to her lessened and degraded by this silent struggle, this fever of the soul, which made impossible all those serenities and sweetnesses of thought in which her nature had always lived of old. The fight into which fate had forced her was destroying her. She was drooping like a plant cut off from all that nourishes its life. And yet she never conceived it possible that she should relinquish that fight. Nay, at times there sprang up in her now a dangerous and despairing foresight of even worse things in store. In the middle of her suffering she already began to feel at moments the ascetic's terrible sense of compensation. What, after all, is a Christian life but warfare? I came not to send peace but a sword. Yes, in these June days Ellesmere's happiness was perhaps nearer wreck than it had ever been. All strong natures grow restless under such a pressure as was now weighing on Catherine. Shock and outburst become inevitable. So she sat alone this hot afternoon, haunted by presentiments, by vague terror for herself and him, while the child tottered about her, cooing, shouting, kissing, and all impulsively with a ceaseless energy like her father. The outer door opened, and she heard Robert's step, and apparently Mr. Flaxman's also. There was a hurried, subdued word or two in the hall, and the two entered the room where she was sitting. Robert came, pressing back the hair from his eyes with a gesture which with him was the invariable accompaniment of mental trouble. Catherine sprang up. "'Robert, you look so tired, and how late you are!' Then she came nearer to him. "'And your coat!' "'Torn! Blood!' "'There's nothing wrong with me, dearest,' he said, hastily, taking her hands. "'Nothing. But it has been an awful afternoon. Flaxman will tell you. I must go to this place, I suppose. I hate the thought of it. Flaxman, will you tell her all about it?' And, loosing his hold, he went heavily out of the room and upstairs. "'It has been an accident,' said Flaxman gently, coming forward, to one of the men of his class. "'Maybe sit down, Mrs. Ellesmere.' "'Your husband and I have gone through a good deal these last two hours.' He sat down with a long breath, 
evidently tried to regain his ordinary even manner. His clothes, too, were covered with dust, and his hand shook. Catherine stood before him in consternation, while a nurse came for the child. "'We had just begun our committee at four o'clock,' he said at last. "'Though only about half of the men had arrived, when there was a great shouting and commotion outside, and a man rushed in, calling for Ellesmere. He ran out, found a great crowd, a huge brewer's dray standing in the street, and a man run over.' The husband pushed his way in. I followed, and to my horror I found him leading by Charles Richards. Charles Richards? Catherine repeated vacantly. Flaxman looked up at her as though puzzled. Then a flash of astonishment passed over his face. Elsmere has never told you of Charles Richards, the little guest fitter, who has been his right hand man for the past three months? No, never, she said slowly. Again he looked astonished. Then he went on sadly. All this spring he has been your husband's shadow. I never saw such devotion. We found him lying in the middle of the road. He had only just left work, a man said who had been with him, and was running to the meeting. He slipped and fell, crossing the street, which was muddy from last night's rain. The dray swung round the corner. The driver was drunk or careless, and they went right over him. One foot was a sickening sight. Your husband and I luckily knew how to lift him for the best. We sent off for doctors. His home was in the next street, as it happened, nearer than any hospital, so we carried him there. The neighbours were round the door. Then he stopped himself. Shall I tell you the whole story? he said kindly. It has been a tragedy. I won't give you details if you'd rather not. Oh, no, she said hurriedly. No, no, tell me and she forgot to feel any wonder that Flaxman, in his chivalry, should treat her as though she were a girl with nerves. Well, it, it was the surroundings that were so ghastly. When we got to the house, an old woman rushed at me. His wife's in there, but you'll not find her in any senses. She'd been at it from eight o'clock this morning. We took the children away. I didn't know what she meant exactly, till we got into the little front room. There, such a spectacle! A young woman on a chair by the fire, sleeping heavily, dead drunk, the breakfast-things on the table, the sun blazing in on the dust and the dirt, and on the woman's face. I wanted to carry him into the room on the other side. He was unconscious, but a doctor had come up with us, and made us put him down on a bed that was in the corner. Then we got some brandy and poured it down. The doctor examined him, looking at his foot, threw something over it. "'Nothing to be done,' he said. "'Internal injuries. He can't live half an hour.' The next minute the poor fellow opened his eyes. They had pulled away the bed from the wall. Your husband was on the farther side, kneeling. When he opened his eyes, clearly the first thing he saw was his wife. He half sprang up. Elsmere caught him, gave a horrible cry, indescribably horrible. "'At it again! At it again! My God!' Then he fell back fainting. They got the wife out of the room between them. A perfect log! You could hear her heavy breathing from the kitchen opposite. We gave him more brandy, and he, he came to again. He looked up in your husband's face. "'She hasn't broke out for two months,' he said so piteously. Two months, and now I'm done, I'm done, and she'll just go straight to the devil.' And it comes out, so the neighbours told us, that for two years or more he'd been patiently trying to reclaim this woman, without a word of complaint to anybody, though his life must have been a dog's life.' 
and now on his deathbed what seemed to be breaking his heart was not that he was dying, but that his task was snatched from him. Flaxman paused and looked away out of the window. He told his story with difficulty. Your husband tried to comfort him, promised that the wife and children should be his special care, that everything that could be done to save and protect them should be done. The poor little fellow looked up at him with the tears running down his cheeks and uh, blessed him. I cared about nothing, he said, when you came. You've been God to me. I've seen him in you. Then he asked us to say something. Your husband said verse after verse of the Psalms, of the Gospels, of St. Paul. His eyes grew filmy, but he seemed every now and then to struggle back to life, and as soon as he caught Elsmere's face his look lightened. Towards the last he said something that none of us caught, but your husband thought it was a line from Emily Bronte's hymn, which he said to them last Sunday in lecture. He looked up at her interrogatively, but there was no response in her face. "'I asked him about it,' the speaker went on, as we came home. "'He said Graves and Anselms once quoted it to him. "'He'd had a love for it ever since.' "'Did he die while you were there?' asked Catherine presently, after a silence. Her voice was dull and quiet. He thought her a strange woman. "'No,' said Flaxman, almost sharply. "'But by now it must be over. "'The last sign of consciousness was a murmur of his children's names.' They brought them in, but his hands had to be guided to them. A few minutes after it seemed to me that he was really gone, though he still breathed. The doctor was certain there would be no more consciousness. We stayed nearly another hour. Then his brother came, and some other relations. We left him. Ah, it's over now. Hugh Flaxman sat looking out into the dingy bit of London garden. Penetrated with pity as he was, he felt the presence of Ellesmere's pale, silent, unsympathetic wife, an oppression. How could she receive such a story in such a way? The door opened, and Robert came in hurriedly. "'Good night, Catherine. He's told you?' He stood by her, his hand on her shoulder, wistfully looking at her, the face full of signs of what he had gone through. "'Yes, it was terrible,' she said with an effort. His face fell. He kissed her on the forehead, and went away. When he was gone, Flaxman suddenly got up and leant against the open French window, looking keenly down on his companion. A new idea had stirred in him. And presently, after more talk of the incident of the afternoon, and when he had recovered his usual manner, he slipped gradually into the subject of his own experiences in North R. during the last six months. He assumed all through that she knew as much as there was to be known of Ellesmere's work, and that she was as much interested as the normal wife is in her husband's doings. His tact, his delicacy, never failed him for a moment. But he spoke of his own impressions of matters within his personal knowledge. And since the Easter sermon he'd been much on Ellesmere's track, he'd been filled with curiosity about him. Catherine sat a little way from him, her blue dress lying in long folds about her, her head bent, her long fingers crossed on her lap. Sometimes she gave him a startled look, sometimes she shaded her eyes, while her other hand played silently with her watch-chain. Flaxman, watching her closely, however little he might seem to, to do so, 
was struck by her austere and delicate beauty, as he had never been before. She hardly spoke all through, but he felt that she listened without resistance, nay, at last, that she listened with a kind of hunger. He went from story to story, from scene to scene, without any excitement, in his most ordinary manner, making his reserves now and then, expressing his own opinion when it occurred to him, and not always favourably. But gradually the whole picture emerged, began to live before them. At last he hurriedly looked at his watch. "'What a time I've kept you! It's been a relief to talk to you.' "'You've not had dinner?' she said, looking up at him with a sudden nervous bewilderment which touched him and subtly changed his impression of her. Uh, "'No matter. I will get some at home. Good-night.' When he was gone, she carried the child up to bed. Her supper was brought to her solitary in the dining-room, and afterwards in the drawing-room, where a soft twilight was fading into a soft and starlit night, she mechanically brought out some work for Mary, and sat bending over it by the window. After about an hour she looked up straight before her, threw her work down, and slipped on to the floor, her head resting on the chair. The shock, the storm, had come. There for hours lay Catherine Ellesmere, weeping her heart away, wrestling with herself, with memory, with God. It was the greatest moral upheaval she had ever known, greater even than that which had convulsed her life at Muirwell. End of Book 6, Chapter 42